Okay, Jesse, last week was pretty awesome hearing a case that so few people have ever heard of, and a Christmas case, no less. What do you have for me this week? The slaughter of a loving and well-respected family on Christmas Eve 1985 mystifies authorities as to why. When the answer arrives, it is so senseless, devastating, and sadly prescient to today's issues. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about bad outlooks, bad decision making, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. And just in time for the holidays, we are actually issuing a limited edition, really cool Red Flags Everywhere sticker. And a lot of you guys have said I've already submitted a review to get a sticker. But if you do a review on Apple Podcasts and you want to actually resubmit your old review, we will send you this brand new sticker. You just have to actually go in, resubmit it. And wait till it gets posted with a new date to send it to us. But we decided, like, this sticker's so cool. We don't want to just make it for people who are coming in with new reviews. We want to make sure that we're thanking you guys, too, for your continued support. Yes, that's the most important part, I think. And the sticker is very cool. It's the crystal ball, red flags everywhere, with a little love murder logo at the bottom. So it's definitely one to add to your collection. Absolutely. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we're so thrilled as always this week to welcome and shout out a new set of patrons. Welcome to Sarah M, Dale S, and Lynette O on Joining the Lovers. Yeah, thank you so much, lovers. And also thank you to all of the very cute partners and loved ones who are buying Love Murder merch for the people they care about I know. this year. So cute. We've got some really cute messages. So y'all are adorable. What is not adorable is today's story. I do have to trigger warn you guys. There will be discussions of home invasion and child murder, which is not usually our jam. So if this one is not the episode for you, feel free to sit it out. But I did feel like, and Andy, we'll get into this. This was actually a very important case to talk about right now. Also, we are going to have some bonus content next week. If this is one that you decide to sit out on, we will have bonus content on our Patreon, which is available to everyone who joins at the $10 level and up. I think we'll have three total, right, Jess? Yes, we will have the one we've already recorded coming out. And then we have two others that we are have already planned but we haven't recorded yet that are way more lighthearted. Yep, those are going to be on Saturday so those should come out by this time next week. Exactly. So if you haven't already, now might be the time. Ask somebody to buy Patreon for you. I mean, that's <laughs> for, for a holiday present. A great holiday <laughs> gift. Yeah, absolutely. 
It was already dark outside by the time the Goldmark family's guests gathered at their front door, eagerly awaiting the traditional Christmas Eve dinner and gift exchange. There was a chill in the air, the faraway wood smoke scent of a chimney fire, and all good tidings around. Patriarch Charles was a 41-year-old civil litigation attorney with the values, smarts, and pedigree to propel him into public office. His wife, 43-year-old Annie, was a brilliant interpreter who was from France originally and spoke several languages. Together, they shared two charming sons, 10-year-old Colin and 12-year-old Derek. The guests looked forward to indulging in Annie's fine cuisine and family customs, a dual French and Swedish experience, imbibing in good cheer and watching the joy in the children's faces as they opened presents at the gift exchange. But as they collected on the front doorsteps, they became concerned. The door was locked, the lights were off, and the gold marks were not responding to their knocking. One of Annie's friends thought perhaps they were even playing a joke. So their family sat on a picnic table on the gold marks deck waiting for the punchline. But it never came. Confused, eventually some of the guests left notes and returned home to try to give them a call on the phone. But when the Goldmark's phone line was busy, some of the concerned friends actually returned back to the house. And this time they ended up going over to a neighbor's home who was also friends with the family who had a key. So this friend was named Jeff Haley. From outside, the group could hear a terrible sound something close to crying or groaning. And as Jeff put the key in the lock, he heard what sounded like Charles potentially crying in pain. So Jeff yelled when he entered the home saying, hey, I'm here, I'm coming in. And at that point, when he did actually cross the threshold, he heard his good friend Charles weakly calling from help from upstairs. He was on the second floor. So at that point, Jeff ran up the stairs and was immediately horrified by the blood-soaked scene that greeted him. Both Charles and Annie were handcuffed and bleeding. Charles from his head and Annie from both her head and chest. Annie and the two boys were completely unconscious and Charles was in and out of consciousness. At that point, Jeff called for help from the assorted friends that were still waiting to hear what was going on. Somebody called 911 and the friends managed to find some, I think a knife or wire cutters to start cutting off the handcuffs. When the paramedics arrived, they whisked Charles and the children to the hospital. All three individuals were just barely clinging to life, but for beautiful Annie, it was already too late her bright light had been snuffed out permanently on Christmas Eve, a day of festivities that she had absolutely adored. The Goldmark's loved ones were stunned, as were the authorities. Something horrific and gruesome and unexplainable had happened to this warm and loving family on a day that most consider sacred, which was a day of love and gathering of those closest to them. But why? The answer to that question is even more baffling and heartbreaking in its senselessness. So yes, right off the bat, I'm going to go ahead and trigger warn you guys again, just because this is a different type of story for us. I discovered it while I was perusing an anthology of Anne Rule crime stories, and it comes from her crime files, volume two called You Belong to Me. And the specific case that she writes about is called Black Christmas. 
I also found an excellent, unbelievably excellent article that ran in the Seattle Met magazine in October 2018 called A Rumor in Madrona by James Ross Gardner. And once I read about this case, Andy, I just could not stop thinking about it. Yeah, it's one of those. Yeah, it's just one of those that gets into your heart and your brain and you just keep coming back to how it could have been prevented and how things could have gone so differently. And we could have still had this beautiful family in the world. You guys will see based on today's social and political climate, how it's very bizarrely relevant. So I decided to go for it, but it's pretty brutal and it does involve children. So let's jump back into a bloody Christmas Eve in the Madrona neighborhood of Seattle, Washington, and talk about this family. By the time the homicide detectives arrived, only Annie still remained. At first, they thought that maybe they were going to be walking into a domestic dispute gone fatal because it's Christmas. And at the holidays, most of the homicides have to do with family disagreements. I mean, also just trying to wrap your head around it. That seems like the most probable situation to rationalize for everyone who witnessed the scene or was supposed to go over there. You know, it's like, how are you even supposed to cope with that? It's also a locked door. So they walked in, but immediately it was clear that this was not the case, especially given how extensive Charles' injuries were. So it was clear pretty early on that this was not a typical domestic dispute turned ugly and that something very, very odd and nightmarish had happened here. The scene before the detectives downstairs was almost eerie in how still cheery the scene was because downstairs there wasn't any blood. There was just still food on the stove that was simmering. It smelled delicious in the household. It was warm. There were lights on the tree twinkling. There's poinsettias all over the house. The table was immaculately set with fine china and red napkins because obviously they had been planning on throwing this party. So downstairs you have almost a perfect Christmas scene and then they go upstairs and it was a completely different story. There were bloodstains all over the master bedroom floor where Charles and his sons had been lying before they were taken to the hospital. Annie's body was still in the room. She was lying on her side, clad only in a bathrobe with her wrists handcuffed behind her. Her chest was exposed, revealing a deep stab wound to her chest. It also appeared that she had been bludgeoned several times on her head and that somebody had actually stabbed her in the fractures. So when she had been bludgeoned, it had fractured her skull And it appeared to the homicide detectives that then somebody had inserted a thin knife into those fractures to stab her directly in the brain. Where one of the children had been lying, there also appeared to be brain matter on the carpet, suggesting that they had been attacked in a similar fashion. And, of course, making the detectives fear the outcome for the children's survival and their brain health. And they had, unfortunately, a very, a very good reason to be worried about that because none of the gold marks survived. Ten-year-old Colin passed away four days after the attack while his father hung on for 16. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is terrible. Twelve-year-old Derek survived for an 
agonizing 37 days in the hospital before passing away like the rest of his family. Jeez. The surgeons at the hospital who attempted to save the Goldmarks' lives said that all three had been battered very badly on the head. And then, just like Annie, someone had deliberately inserted a thin knife into the brain itself. And it appeared that they had essentially tried to scramble the brain. I mean, imagine being a doctor trying to and seeing fix trying to this. make sense of yes. this. No, I think that there was very little that they could do. I think they were just trying to make them as comfortable as I possible. know, but like how helpless can you feel when that's your job? Yeah, they don't have this one on Grey's Anatomy. I don't remember this storyline. Jeez. Back at the Goldmark's house, the detectives had already discovered the murder weapons. They were found where Annie's body had been lying. It was a steam iron, like the kind you iron your clothes with, and it was found next to Annie with the plastic handle broken off and blood and hair all over the plate. So this person had used a clothes iron to batter the entire family. They also found a thin, sharp filleting knife, and that was discovered on the bathroom floor. And it appeared that both of the items that were used as murder weapons came from the Goldmark's house. A motive was far from clear. Annie, though clad in a, only a bathrobe, appeared to have just been surprised while either entering or exiting the shower, but she had not been sexually assaulted. So it did not seem that the sexual assault was part of the motivation. She also still had on a very expensive diamond engagement ring, as well as a gold bracelet. And the home had computers, more than one. I think they had three computers. They had multiple TVs. They had priceless antiques and stereo equipment that certainly would have been taken if robbery had been the motivation. It seems like based on the evidence that they thought that there was only one assailant and the detectives were trying to work out how this one person had managed to contain and kill the entire family by themselves, even if they had a gun, let's say. At some point, they would have had to put it down while they're handcuffing. Like, there was, like, a lot going on, and especially just because you have handcuffs on doesn't mean you can't run, necessarily. So... If the person started killing the family, you'd think at least one person would have made a run for it while the stabbing or the hitting was going on. Yeah. So they're really confused as how they managed to contain the entire family in this one room. And you said the boys were a little older too, right? They're 10 and 12. They're definitely old enough that they could have made a run for it themselves, gone to get a neighbor. They were not handcuffed. Huh. Just the parents are handcuffed. So the answer to how this could have gone down actually came pretty quickly after some bloody handkerchiefs were found at the scene and tested. They were found positive for chloroform. So this bastard had chloroformed the family, which made it possible for him to perform his sick tasks without anyone fighting back. Yeah. So... That's a very cowardly move. However, knowing that the family was very likely unconscious during this attack did offer the Goldmarks loved ones a very small amount of comfort. I mean, how are you supposed to find any light in this, you know? But if that helps him a little, then I'm glad that the detectives I mean, found I, it honestly, out. There's nothing to feel better about, but I was feeling very sick thinking about somebody 
doing that to children in front of their parents. And so it obviously this would be a nightmare scenario in any realm of the imagination. But knowing that they didn't actually have to witness it did make me feel slightly better. Less sick. Less sick. Let's yes. say that. Not yeah. better, less but sick. less less sick. None of the Goldmark's friends or family could think of any reason anyone would want them dead. So the police began canvassing the area to see if anyone had seen anything or anyone odd. A woman who lived across the street said that a strange young man, likely in his late 20s, had come to her door with a white box. He had asked for a Charles somebody with slightly slurred words, and she had told him that she didn't know anyone by that name. The man had been tall, dark-haired, and with light-colored, vacant eyes that had haunted her. She was able to perfectly describe this alleged delivery man to a sketch artist. Meanwhile, across town, another man was getting an unexpected and pretty unpleasant surprise on Christmas Day. So Anne Rule pseudonyms this man Max in her book, so we're just going to roll with that because his name isn't super important to the story. Max welcomed in a young man to his home named David Rice. So essentially, this guy Max was in this pro-constitution, anti-communist group called the Duck Club. And it was called the Duck Club because the motto came from if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's likely a duck. Now, this was a group that was committing themselves to rooting out communists still in 1985 for some reason. And Anne Rule very generously called this club a discussion group. I don't think that's the whole truth of it. Journalists and podcasters like the host of Unforbidden Truth, Andrew Dodge, has called it for more recently for what it was, an anti-Semitic extremist group largely ground in hate. So David belonged to this group. So did this guy, Max. Now, Max was already kind of on the fence about leaving this group because he was a black man. And so he's like, OK, so first they're going to come for these individuals and then they're probably going to come for me. He was just really interested in the Constitution. So like he thought it was like what they were advertising what they were. I mean, in 1985, it's like you get a flyer handed to you. And if it says, do you love the Constitution? Do you love America? And in 1985, you love both You're those like, things. Yeah. And then you <laughs> yeah. get there and it's... You're like, oh, shit. This is a bunch of guys totally in the back of a U-Haul. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. You know? Hunting down commies. Oh, yeah. my God. So he was already, like, not so sure about being in this group. Okay, Max, get out, Max. Yeah. And then he knew that this guy, David, was slightly unhinged. He had come in through a girlfriend of David's who had been a member of this group who was 13 years older than him and a naturopath doctor. And he'd always found David a little odd. And then David comes in on Christmas and he is a hot mess. He's like, hey, I, I haven't slept for 72 hours. I need a place to stay. I can't go back to Anne's. That's his girlfriend. I guess they were going through a breakup at that point. Okay. Which they, they were going through a breakup because... He was a hot mess. He didn't have a job. He was getting increasingly unhinged. And he had apparently pawned her television. Yeah. So she had gone somewhere for the holidays and she was like, just be out before I get back. And so I don't know how much Max knew about the state of the relationship, but this guy he knows from this club shows up and he is 
clearly not well, but at that point, Max didn't know it's Christmas. He didn't know what to do. It was pretty late at this point, too. So he's like, you can crash on my couch, man. I'm really tired, so I'm going to go to bed now. I guess I'll see you in the morning. And so he, like, went, locked his door, went to sleep. So the next morning he woke up, and David was still sleeping on the couch. And Max had seen him kind of writing in this little notepad, scribbling, when he had gone to bed. And when he walked over to the table, he found a very unsettling note. It read, To whom it may concern, I am the person you are looking for in the Goldmark case. I know what I did was a very terrible thing. That is why I am as you see me now. I want it perfectly understood that no one else had anything whatsoever to do with what I did. I went to great lengths to make sure of that. The person that I live with doesn't even know that I am wanted on a different charge. She received a couple of messages on her machine, but I erased them before she got to them. I did not use the rifle that I purchased a few weeks ago. Instead, I fooled them with a toy pistol, which you will find in the storage locker. I threw the rifle away a couple of weeks ago. Again, I want it understood that no one knew anything about this, so please do not cause any unnecessary suffering to innocent people. I think that I've already done enough. Uh, I guess I should tell you why I did what I did. That way you won't have to ask other people about it. My life is a mess. It has been since my wife left. Anne has been trying to help me straighten it out, but... And that was it. Um, Could you imagine being this guy and while you're reading this, you're looking over and he's sleeping there? Yeah, that would result in me immediately calling 911. Yes. So while he's reading this, David starts stirring. So he immediately says, hey, I've got to run to the store to get a pack of cigarettes. Do you want anything? And when he got out of the house, he went to a payphone and called the police right away. So the police did not know whether this was for real. The Goldmark case was very widely publicized because they were well known in the community as had been Charles's father, who had been a politician. So this was all over, everywhere, because that type of thing, like a wonderful, loving family slain on Christmas Eve, obviously, unfortunately, becomes huge news. And so when they got this call, they were like, it can't be that easy. It can't be like, this guy wrote a confession. This seems crazy. But obviously, we're going to send some uniformed officers down And if this seems for real, we're going to arrest the guy. So when they got to Max's apartment just to have a conversation with David, he tried to run. So he took off. So that's the first indication that they were on the right track. Yeah, They managed to tackle him. And as soon as they were able to clap cuffs on him, the detectives were pretty darn sure that he was the guy because he looked exactly like the police sketch that the woman had described. Yep. It was the eyes, one of the detectives said. I looked in those eyes and I remembered the sketch from the Goldmark's neighbor. It was as if I was looking into the eyes in that picture. Jeez. She said she would never forget those eyes and I could see why. They were very distinct, far away, and yes, vacant. Whoa. David was read his Miranda rights and he was taken down to the police station. On December 26th at just past 1 p.m., David Lewis Rice began talking. He told a horrifying story that concluded with him taking the lives of the Goldmark family, including those two innocent little boys. But why 
what could possibly have been his motivation and who the hell is this monster anyway? Let's get into that right now. David was born in Durango, Colorado in 1958 and had led a troubled life. He had been considered a black sheep and an outcast in his family pretty much his entire life. He denies it, but it was clear that there was some sort of mental illness at play. Yep. It didn't help that it seemed like he was very accident prone as well. At four, he slammed into a sliding glass door, shattering the glass and causing deep injuries to his right eye and eyebrow that left him partially blind. Um, whoa. Yeah, at four years old. Following a fight with his brothers when he was 11 years old, he attempted suicide by hanging. He locked his door and tried to hang himself, and his father actually was able to break the door down and save him. David dropped out of school around 16 or so, and he joined the army, but the army didn't even want him. He ended up being discharged before boot camp was even over. Looking for a really cool gift to impress your parents, your grandparents, or any of your loved ones? A great choice comes from the sponsor of today's episode, mylifeinabook.com. They offer a fun way to get to know your loved ones better, collect timeless memories for future generations, and of course, bring the family together. It's simple. You select from a series of fun and exciting questions that you wouldn't think to ask, such as, what's the funniest memory you have of your siblings? Or do you have a secret you never told your own parents? And then it gets emailed to them and they write an answer and can even attach a meaningful photo. This happens every week. At the end of one year, they all get compiled and printed into a beautiful keepsake book. And you can get copies for all of your family members if you want. And to make sure that you preserve it digitally in case anything happens to the physical copies, you can also get it in audio format. I think this is such a sweet gift for the holidays, Andy. It totally is. So the best thing to do is sign up for it now, essentially, so you can start asking your loved ones all of the questions over the next year, and then you'll have a done deal for next year for Christmas. Absolutely. Oh, that's thinking ahead, too, because I feel like at this time of year, I'm always thinking about what I should be doing for next year's present, and then I forget and I don't do it. This is like one and done. Get it done. It'll prompt you every week. And then by this time next year, you'll have a perfect present. With My Life in a Book, you can show your loved ones that they are meaningful to the family and help build their legacy. I've tried it with my grandmother, and next year I'm going to do it for my aunt. I'm very excited. To save $10 off your first purchase, use discount code LOVEMURDER. That's LOVEMURDER to get $10 off on mylifeinabook.com. David was, I got to put it bluntly, guys, it's the truth. He was a loser. He was just a loser. He had no skills. He had no real ambition. And he was very off-putting to be around. Do they think that it was a result of his head injury when he was four? Or was there something wrong with him prior? They don't know. His family just said he just was just odd. They didn't know. And I don't know if it was like odd prior to the injury when he was four I years mean, old. that's horrifying. Crashing through a glass door. Oh, yeah. Also, as a four-year-old, you have to be going pretty fast. I still remember, I think... One of the most mortifying moments of my life was being at a party when I was like 12 years old, walking directly into a glass door in front of everyone. And it was just really, 12 is such a hard age. And then bam, and I fell backwards and like my nose was out of joint. And, and everyone's like, oh my God, are you okay? I'm 
turning bright red just talking about it. I'm having a time machine worth of embarrassment about that situation. But I was not a little 12-year-old. I was a pretty solid gal. And I couldn't even break it. So he must have been flying in order to shatter that. And then think about how scary eye injuries are. I know. Glass through the eyeball. But yeah, we do not know if that contributed to this situation or his mental state of mind. So he just had a very hard time existing in the world. Nothing ever seemed to work out for him. He managed to train and score a job as a welder, but then he was laid off. He managed to meet a woman, get married, have a baby, but then she left him and took their child. David pretty much gave up altogether when his wife left him. He became a drifter and eventually ended up in Seattle where he lived in cars and homeless shelters until he met Ann Davis, the 40-year-old naturopath, while he was literally living on the streets. She took him in and the two developed some sort of relationship. It seems like it was implied that it was more romantic than just friendly. And it was Anne who introduced David to the Duck Club and anti-communism rhetoric. Without a job or family to give his life structure or even a hobby or friends, it sounds like, David just poured himself into studying enemies of the United States, what he perceived as enemies of the United States, namely communists and Jewish people. He spent most of his days in the library reading anti-communist propaganda and anti-Semitic propaganda, like the works of a man named Jack Moore, who was a retired army colonel who claimed that international Jewish bankers dictated foreign policy and were secretly pushing the United States to become a communist nation. So you can find that in the fiction section, right? I don't know where. I have a feeling that this guy was like full-on microfiction all day. Because 1985, would that be before there were, that was before there's computers, it's before there's the internet. So he was finding all of these articles in the library, and he was going back generations to read different newspaper articles. So I'm, I'm imagining him just on that machine. Yeah. Broke, angry, and with nothing left to lose and absolutely nothing that gave his life meaning, David was looking for someone to blame, someone to fight, some action he could take that would give his life purpose. And he felt like saving America was his purpose. David decided that he would single-handedly discover who the communist kingpin was in the Seattle area, break into their house, and torture them into giving up their corrupt comrades, therefore being able to locate and eliminate every threat to the United States. He spent months at this duck club, which apparently the leader of which had name-checked the gold marks at some point. And then he also was, like I said, combing articles in the library, trying to ascertain who exactly the head honchos of this supposed communist secret group in the Seattle area were. And after weeks of research and, I mean, being fed this conspiracy information at this club, yeah. David determined that Mr. and Mrs. Goldmark were his targets. Now, the Goldmarks were neither communist nor were they Jewish, which he also believed. And whether or not they're Jewish 
is beside the point because he wanted to kill these people not just because of even who they were, which is, of course, deplorable in itself, but because of who he thought they were that was not even true. Yeah. So now you guys can see why, sadly, this is very reminiscent of the times we're living in because this is a nearly 40-year-old terrible murder that's based on anti-Semitism, which is horrifically on the rise here in the United States and I think other parts of the world as well. So, I mean, I just was kind of stunned that, I mean, obviously it's been going on forever, but this is an important reminder to stamp it out at every opportunity. This is not something that we can let as a society continue. This rhetoric cannot continue because it leads to murder. But going back to the story, why did David believe that the gold marks were communist? Well, that also had to do with political misinformation. David slaughtered an innocent family of four based on a lie a political rival had told almost 30 years before the events of this episode. Holy shit. Yes. In order to understand where this deadly rumor had come from, we need to go back and talk about the Goldmark family in slightly more detail. So we're going to all aboard the backstory machine right now and go back to the early 1940s. Charles' parents, John and Sally Goldmark, had met and fallen in love in Washington, D.C. They were married shortly thereafter in 1942. Sally was a Brooklyn girl through and through, born to German immigrant parents. She had a genius-level IQ and had one year of medical school under her belt when the Great Depression happened and she was forced to drop out because she could not pay her tuition. Because we don't need doctors during the Great Depression. Yeah, you'd think that there would be a little bit of a, like, a loan forgiveness situation <laughs> for training medical professionals. Wanting to help other people in her situation, she actually went to D.C. and she worked for Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Wow. And that's where she met John Goldmark, a handsome young attorney who had attended Harvard and whose great uncle had been a Supreme Court justice. They are a power couple. After Charles, whom everyone called Chuck, was born, John bravely served his country in World War II, disarming bombs in the South Pacific. So he's also an American hero. Afterwards, the couple gave birth to a second child, Charles' younger brother, Peter. The family moved to rural Washington and became ranchers, living off the land some 250 miles northeast of Seattle. In 1956, John won a seat as a state representative, then a second and a third term. This was impressive as he was a Democrat in a very Republican county. But he was just extremely well-liked. Like I said, he is a hero from World War II. He was a rancher alongside his more Republican neighbors. And he kind of was like one of those types of people that could cross the aisle. Charles and Peter had a charmed but difficult life on the farm. They planted crops. They tended to livestock. They weeded and rock picked and repaired farm equipment. So they said it was perfect. I'm just saying like difficult as far as they like got their hands dirty. They were doing chores from sunup to sundown. They were not like spoiled rich kids that like live on like a gentleman's farm. They were working, working that farm. Both kids were smart, but Charles was especially brilliant. He even taught the family German shepherd how to herd cattle, of course, but also climb ladders. What? <laughs> Sit in the saddle of a moving horse 
And they even, there was like a big prank that they did one time where they got the <laughs> German Shepherd to sit up in like a tractor. And then like he hid underneath and was like actually controlling the. <laughs> oh my God. The brakes and the gas. But it appeared that the German Shepherd was steering and driving the tractor by himself. And apparently they went by the mailman and the mailman like literally ran his car off the road because he thought it was just a German shepherd coming down the road driving a tractor. I mean, that's a scene. That is a scene. In 1962, Charles went to college and his father, John, was up for his fourth term in the state Senate. John's opposition this time played dirty. So it turned out that more than 20 years before, a very young, idealistic, and Curious Sally had attended one communist meeting to see if there was a better way to serve the people after the collapse of the economy during the Great Depression. It was kind of like what you and I were just talking about. Like, why wasn't there services in place to help people finish medical school or to assist families that were starving, which is obviously FDR did the New Deal and she was working in Washington by that point. But while she was starting that life in D.C., she had attended a communist meeting. She ultimately decided this is not for her. She was not going this route. She wasn't interested in being a part of the Communist Party. But she had signed a roster. She had signed some meeting roster. And I guess now that he was going for his fourth term, they were really reaching for whatever could bring him down. So armed with just that little shred of evidence that she had once attended a communist meeting 20 years before he is up for re-election. His political opponents said that both of the gold marks were communists. And not only were they communists, but they were like ahead of a secret cabal of communists. Oh, my God. John's opponent used the media of the time, newspapers, and one of the editors of one of these newspapers wrote that John was, quote, complicit in a monstrous conspiracy to remake America into a totalitarian state, which would throttle freedom and crush individual initiative. Wow. Yes. So this was completely untrue. But the narrative took hold and John lost his fourth term in a landslide. Refusing to let the lies go unchallenged, John and Sally successfully sued for libel in a landmark case, ending up receiving a $40,000 settlement, which I did not look up, but this is, I think at the time, the 50s or 60s. So that's a, a shit ton of money, guys. But it wasn't about the money for the gold marks. It was about the truth. Yes. They just wanted the truth out there. They didn't care. They did feel vindicated that the truth had triumphed. John and Sally would not live long enough to see how much that lie would actually cost their family. It's actually insane. I mean, they even went through the process of proving it legally that it was not true. And this happens decades later. Journalist James Ross Gardner wrote the following lies, even after exposed die hard, especially those given so much oxygen early on. They hide in dark corners. They scatter to unseen places. 
And so the false claims that the Goldmark family harbored pro-communist, anti-American sympathies clung on. The rumor stayed alive as a whisper down through years and decades until, by 1985, it had reached the wrong person at exactly the right time. I mean, that is so unbelievably poignant. Isn't that incredible? Yes. I recommend you guys read the whole article. I'll make sure to put it in the notes because he's a phenomenal writer. Just chills. Unaware of the lurking danger, Charles had made an incredible life for himself. He actually was in college. He was in his undergraduate when all of this went down with the libel and he testified on his parents' behalf. He spoke to the newspapers himself. So he was very actively involved in also fighting those rumors from much earlier in his life. So yeah, he attended Yale Law. He went to military officer school. Well in Europe with the military, he met Annie, a multilingual interpreter. The couple moved to Seattle where Charles joined a law firm, eventually making partner. And the family welcomed the two boys in the mid-70s. Derek and Colin were incredibly smart, also multilingual. Colin was in the choir, and Derek's art was featured in a student exhibit at the Seattle Center. Oh, my God. Talented, smart, artistic. The family was also exceptionally close. On weekends, Charles would blast Bach at full volume to wake the entire family up. And then they would go hiking or on other outdoor activities. Charles began to explore following in his father's footsteps into politics and appeared as a delegate for the presidential candidate Gary Hart at the 1984 Democratic National Convention in San Francisco. So this was a family that had everything going for them. Success, happiness, good values, great friends. I mean, you can imagine that on Christmas Eve in 1985, this house was full of warm, delicious dinner smells. The Christmas music is playing. There's Andy, you know what this is like, the rush and bustle of getting ready for a large dinner party. It's like everything's cooking and maybe you have a glass of wine and you're excited about all your friends are coming over. You're finishing up last minute things. A friend of Annie's had come over actually to help with all the cooking that day. And she said she had only left about 90 minutes, maybe two hours before they, everyone was supposed to be at the party just so she could go back, take a shower and change. And she said that Annie was still cooking, finishing up, and she planned to, the last thing she was going to do was going to take a shower and then change into this special Scandinavian Christmas garb that she always wore for this party. It was this friend who would confusedly stand outside the Goldmark's locked door less than, like I said, two hours later. What happened next, we know from David Rice's confession. Even though David had been seeking his communist victims for months, he seemed ill-prepared for his mission. I mean, first of all, right off the bat, he did not know that John and Sally had both passed away. He was going into this thinking that Charles and Annie were actually John and Sally. Yeah, he's like not well in the head. He's not well and he's not doing any sort of research, clearly. He would only find out after the murders that the gold marks were not the right gold marks that he thought they were and that none of the gold marks had been communist or Jewish. And he didn't even seem to really know where they lived as evidenced by the trip to the neighbor's house before he made his way across the street and did find their home. 
Well, David began to realize he had made a mistake when a boy he believed to be eight to 10 answered the door, which was, of course, 10 year old Colin. He told the police he was taken aback because he had assumed it was going to be an older couple who was alone. Colin called for his father. And when Charles came to the door, David forced his way in by brandishing a realistic looking toy gun. He then pushed Charles, Derek, and Colin upstairs to the master bedroom where Annie was stepping out of the bathroom wearing only a bathrobe. It seemed like she was coming out of the shower. Charles was calm despite the shocking horror of what was happening. And his colleague said that as a litigation attorney, his, one of his most marked skills was that he was always calm. He never got riled. They were always impressed that he could keep calm in any situation. And he asked David if he wanted money. And David said money would help. And so he said, okay, I only have $14, but I'll give you my bank card. And then David wrote down his pin, which David would later discover in anger that smart Charles had given him an incorrect number, just hoping he was going to leave and then he'd be able to call the police and he wouldn't be worried about that sort of thing. After they had this exchange... And he took the bank card. David ordered the family to lay face down on the master bedroom floor. And he handcuffed Annie and Charles behind their back. David was very adult. He only had two sets of handcuffs because he had only been expecting two people. And he told police, I had to stop for a minute. I was getting a little rattled because there were two kids. And so I stopped and I thought, and... Well, then I just figured I'm in it now. I can't stop. David Rice described where the gold marks had lain, all of them helpless now on the floor of the master bedroom. He had intended to get some information from Charles, but he found there was no point at which he could ask questions. There had, David recalled, been very little conversation. Charles had told him, I want to tell you that we're expecting company and that they're going to be here at 730. Now, it was 7.10 at this point. So I think Charles was being really smart. He knows that, and it's true, that this guy has an entire family. He's got 20 minutes, and he was thinking maybe any reasonable person, well, reasonable person wouldn't be doing this, but any reasonable person would go, oh, shit, I got to go because somebody could come early. I got to get out of this house. Unfortunately, David was clearly not well, and he did not feel as though he could leave the family alive to identify him. So despite the fact that he had failed his mission to extract information about this communist network in Seattle, he still went ahead with murdering an innocent family. Unbelievable. And not even the people he thought he was going to see. Not even. It was the, the child and the child's family of the people he believed he was going to torture and potentially kill. He chloroformed Charles first and then Annie, who fought like hell against the rag, but ultimately passed out. She was forced to breathe and passed out. And then the children. David then searched the house for a murder weapon and he decided to bludgeon them with the steam iron. But after badly beating all four members of the family in the head, cracking their skulls, he realized that they were still alive. They still had a pulse. So that's when he got the fillet knife 
which was how he described it. He described it as a filleting knife. It was a long, thin, very sharp knife. And again, this is back to what I what I told you guys the surgeon already knew. David tried to say in his confession that he was trying to put them out of their misery, that this was some sort of kindness. He didn't want to leave them in a vegetative state. He wanted to finish them. And so he slid the knife into the cracks of their skull fractures and literally scrambled their brains. It's really actually quite shocking that Charles, Colin, and Derek lived as long as they did. 100%. He was running out of time, and I guess Annie was beginning to stir. She was beginning to move. He was worried that the chloroform was wearing off, so that's why he stabbed her hard in the chest, which did kill her. He then turned off all of the lights and left through a door that was in a sub-basement. So that beautiful, brilliant family all dead on Christmas Eve because of a bullshit, decades-old political rumor and anti-Semitism. Also, like, he went up to a neighbor's house already, too. Yeah, like, she was going to recognize him. Is he going to have to go across the street and kill her whole family, too? He could have left them alive very easily. And then what? He would have gotten picked up for breaking into their house. Like, what? That's a couple years? Yeah, I mean, prison for a couple years could have, like, done him good. I mean, I don't know about 1985. I don't know if it could have done him good. But, I mean, he needed something else in his life, clearly. Yeah, he needed some sort of structure. Yeah. David's trial began in May of 1986. His defense attorneys attempted to argue insanity, but in his recorded confession, he sounded coherent. Yeah, no, no. Somewhat intelligent and completely without remorse. Not to mention the fact that there was that half-finished confession letter that he had written the day after the attack. And he had also reached out to the Duck Club president to let him know that he had, quote, dumped the top communist. Wow. He didn't know until he was arrested for sure that he had screwed up. He didn't find out until the authorities informed him that they weren't John and Sally and they weren't Jewish and they weren't communists. He didn't know that until much later. And he still had no remorse. It's seemingly. Jesus. On June 5th, 1986, David Rice was convicted on four counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. A decade later, he successfully appealed what? and his death sentence, yes, but it was just downgraded to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So he was taken off of death row. So David is now in his mid-60s and he is still in prison. That's where he will remain until he dies. The podcast Unforbidden Truth featured an interview with David on their first episode, or it's their oldest episode at least. It's the September 15th, 2020 episode, and it's honestly very hard to listen to. It's very hard to listen to this man talk. Yeah. And I do think that the host, Andrew Dodge, does a great job in interviewing. He's not exactly like a softball, but it's just I really like it makes me a little sick to like know that he has any platform. And he's talking about his difficult childhood. And I'm like, fuck you, dude. Like, I don't care that you had a difficult childhood. I don't. Like, I don't want to hear half of a podcast about what might have led up to this. It seems like you're asking for understanding and sympathy and empathy when you did not extend that to your fellow man. No. 
it's like one thing to talk about a hard childhood when people have persevered and overcome hardships and are doing good. But like to hear that as some form of an excuse for what he did. Yes, is, that's what I think. That's what the excuse part of it was like making me feel irate. And at the end, he did say he was sorry. He said that his attorney never let him say that he was sorry before. And he was like glad he could finally publicly apologize to the family. But this is this came out in 2020. And he committed these atrocities in 1985. And this is the first time he is apologizing. And it did not ring true because it he didn't seem upset or apologetic in describing the crimes and describing how he was misinformed about and how he genuinely believed that this family was a threat to the United States. I don't love watching them, but you, that I Am a Killer show where it interviews people who are in jail most of the time for yep. life without possibility of parole. It's really the fascinating thing about that show is you can really see the people who actually are remorseful, like yes. genuinely remorseful, have been haunted by it daily, know that they are going to be in prison for the rest of their life because of something that they did and like genuinely feel bad about it versus the people who still have zero remorse and are making excuses and are victimizing themselves. And it's so polarizing with each person. And I couldn't imagine, it, I don't think I could is. ever listen to that, to him try to blame anyone else and have some sort of half-assed apology at the end. Like, I can't. Especially when you murder children on Christmas yeah, Eve. Yeah, no. I don't know. Yeah, so it is a good interview. It's just very hard to listen to. <sighs> no one else was held ever accountable for the murders, even though, like I said, there was evidence that the leader of the Duck Club had mentioned the gold marks several times in these meetings, which is where David had got the idea. And then he went and did research and he found all of those old newspaper articles that seemed to confirm them. Jeff Haley, who found the family, said the people who spread this misinformation to the sociopath were tragically negligent. I thought at the time that they should be held by society to account somehow. Yeah. Did they pinpoint exactly who it was from the Duck Club who had said it? Like, did they know who it was and just... It was the leader, I believe. Yeah. I think that the organization disbanded, Is I, I'm pretty sure. I didn't actually do a lot of research into the Duck Club per se, focusing it more on the family. So I don't know, but I believe it was disbanded. Journalist... James Ross Gardner made the case in his 2018 article that we are currently living in a time of widespread conspiracy theories and dangerous misinformation. Four years ago, and it's even more true today, he interviewed Amir Arif, a researcher for the University of Washington, who said, there's something uniquely depressing about this. The story forces me to think about how some of the fallout and effect that we will be seeing from some of the narratives that get spread online, we might not see the impact of today's conspiracies for years to come. Yeah. And that is truly terrifying. And everything is so much easier, except e easier to spread that information. Yeah, and easier to access for people. Like you do one quick Google of someone's name and if some psychopath doesn't like what they see... That's why I thought that this story was important to tell. Obviously, it does take place over Christmas. And I also thought that it could be kind of our Christmas Carol moment. Like, let this story be the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future as a 
reminder to all of us that our words matter. What we do, what media we consume, how we choose to treat others, all of this matters more than you know, more than you think. You individually very much matter. And if somebody is telling you, even somebody you think you respect is telling you to hate at all, and especially if it's an entire group of people that you do not know just based on some aspect of who they are, then that is not a good person to be following. And I just want y'all to think about that. And I, I really do wish that we can all collectively turn away from hate very loudly and embrace love. I mean, it is, it's Christmas, man. It is Christmas. I definitely know, Andy, that you're with me on this, but if, whatever you're celebrating, be it Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, very Christian Christmas, or my family's kind of more Coca-Cola commercial Santa Claus Christmas, or maybe you're just like chilling out, agnostic, taking a nice winter break, or maybe you're having a pagan solstice party. I don't know. But whatever you're celebrating, just know that we love you. We really do. Seriously, it doesn't matter to us what you're celebrating or how you're <laughs> it celebrating it, as long as it matter. is not hateful. As long as it's not hateful and you're not contributing to any hateful rhetoric. And we got you. So we got you, babies. I hope that you all have such a wonderful holiday season, truly from the bottom of our loved up hearts. In conclusion, stay safe and take care of one another. Absolutely. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy everything. Bye, guys. <laughs> <laughs>